Country Roads. You know, not until a few weeks ago did I really understand how iconic this song has become. A lot of you know my daughter got married in June. We had a band that was performing at the wedding. And you know the band's job, right, is to get the wedding rocking, to get the people up out of their chairs, away from their cake, out onto the dance floor. And of course, you know, the, the culmination, like every, every wedding wants to end in, in a memorable fashion. As Donna, Donna Summer sang, last chance, right, last dance. Uh, a lot of uh, nights, many weddings, the last song is Closing Time by the Semisonics. And so, as the guy footing the bill for this little shindig, as the evening was getting to wrap up, I couldn't help but wonder how the band was going to put a bow on the celebration. A and this was a pretty good band, and so I thought it would be big and epic, like a, a real rocker. You know what I got? Country Roads. Which, you, if you had asked me before the wedding how the closing night with country roads would have gone, I would have said, terrible. There's no way that's going to work. This is why I'm a preacher and not a rock star. Because the floor, which was already packed out with people, immediately erupted in the song. It was like this giant communal cry got let out. Country roads, take me home. You know, this is the, the second time we've been making our way through these songs of summer. And one of the things that I've realized along the way is, by far, it seems the predominant themes of, of a lot of iconic songs, it, well, it's love. You know that. But I have to tell you, I think this concept of home, I think it's got to be number two. I mean, the list is endless. It spends every genre. My Hometown by Bruce Springsteen, Small Town by John Mellencamp, Homeward Bound, Simon and Garfunkel, Castle on a Hill, Ed Sheeran, Sweet Home Alabama, Leonard Skinner, Who Says You Can't Go Home, Bon Jovi, I'll Name the Dogs, Blake Shelton, Back Where I Came From, Kenny Chesney, Heck, There's Even My House by Flo Rida, and who can forget where Bing Crosby said we all want to be on December 25th, Home for Christmas. Honestly, if you want some fun, Go home and look all of this up. You will be able to put together a whole cross-country road trip playlist just about wanting to turn around and go home. Perhaps next to love, there is no more common ache or shared human longing than this ache and longing for home. All of us live to one degree or another with this unsettled feeling of, of alienation, of of not being at home. This is why there are so many songs longing for it. This is why they sell. This is why the dance floor was packed with people. 90% of them or more lived within a half hour of the venue, and yet they were all screaming, take me home. They were home. Why? Because the truth is, and we all feel this, that in this world, even when we are home, it still doesn't feel exactly right the way it should. Even at home, we, we still, we long to be home. All of which begs a certain question. Why? Why this universal ache and longing? Why, no matter where we go, can't we seem to find home? Well, I believe that this quest for home is rooted uh, it, it underpins the human story as chronicled over 2,000 years by the 40 writers of the 66 books in the Bible. I think they would all conclude 
that all human beings were made for a home that all of us have lost. All of us, in, in one way or another, all of us are, are a little like aliens. We find ourselves feeling this sense of exile. You know, here's what the scriptures say. That God made us, and then immediately he made us a home. Genesis chapter 2, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Very next verse, what's the first thing God does with us? Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. It's funny. God created our home before he even created us. The first thing he does is he meets our primary need. The primary need of his created, he gives us a home, the Garden of Eden. It's a, a place that was perfectly created to meet the deepest needs and longings of the human heart. In that place, there existed what the Bible refers to as a state of shalom. There was complete goodness and wholeness and rightness between man and earth and man and man and man and God. Everything existed in perfect harmony. This garden was made for us. Every need was met, physical, spiritual, intellectual, psychological, social. We were made to be in this garden. See, this was home, not West Virginia, Eden. Tim Keller just gives a brilliant analogy in, in terms of trying to understand this concept of creation and home. He says, imagine that you volunteered to ride the first rocket ship up to Mars and you survived the seven months of the capsule that it would take you to get there. A and you land, and the first thing you do is you pop open that capsule door and you take a big old breath of, of that fresh, unpolluted Martian air. Well, you'd only be there for about a second or two when your lungs would begin to experience, they'd begin to feel alienation. Why? Because this is not home. This environment was not created for you, for you to prosper in, nor were you created to exist in this environment. You see, your lungs are built to, to inhale air that's about 20% oxygen. On Mars, what you would have just taken in was only about 1.5%. And your lungs are now letting you know you are not home. He goes on to point out that soon you're also going to begin to feel some other things. Psychological, social alienation. And you know why? because there's no one else there. You're alone. Y you know what God did? What his next act was once he put man in his garden home? The scriptures say that the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. You see, y you weren't created to be alone. A and in short, just a short amount of time, that loneliness on Mars is going to begin to have significant and severe social and psychological impacts on you. Mars is not home, and the truth is you will not live very long there. Long before the isolation gets you, your lungs, after just, just a few minutes, are going to fill with carbon dioxide, and you're going to die very quickly. But, following the analogy along, you're a bright person, right? You take one quick breath, and you realize, well, wait a minute, this place cannot support my needs. It's not made for me, and I wasn't made for it. And so you jump back in the capsule, you pump up the oxygen, and you do head back to Earth. Here's the problem. See, when you get back to Earth, the truth is the same fate actually awaits you here. You're going to die here too. 
I mean, it's just a longer, slower process. This place, too, you see, was not made for you. It cannot meet all of your needs, and you were not made for it. This place is not meant for you. You will die here, too. This cannot be home. And thus, this universal ache. Now, you might be thinking if you're tracking along, well, I get the Mars example, but, but if, if, if Earth, if, if this world isn't our home, why, why not? What happened? And, and where is home? Well, again, according to the arc of the Scriptures, this shared feeling of alienation is the product of, of what the Bible refers to as sin. Now, you know, sin, it sounds like a religious word, and I know it's been loaded down with cultural baggage throughout the ages, but sin at its most basic level is simply this. It's missing the mark laid out by God. It is the heart of rebellion that each of us shares, this desire at our core, fueled by pride, not to allow God to be God, but to choose to be our own God and and to decide what's right and what's wrong on our own. That's sin. What's fascinating is sin carries with it a very expected outcome. You first see it in the garden. God in Eden, this perfect home made for us. He gives man only one command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Most of you know the story. Temptation comes to man in the form of pride and rebellion. And well, if, if I eat of the tree, they thought I can be like God and determine for myself what's right and what's wrong. We won't have to deal with absolute truth. Truth will be for me, whatever it is I've decided. We see this in our culture today, right? And this temptation, which at first took root in in their heart, but quickly moved into action, the result of this first but quickly metastasizing sin, well, God had told them if they ate of the tree that they would surely die. Interestingly enough, God does not kill them. But what does he do? So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Sin, in all of its forms, always leads to separation, isolation, and distance. You ever lied to your wife? What was the impact on your relationship? You ever cheated someone? Stolen something? gossiped about someone, you name it, the result is always the same, right? Sin is always separating us. It is always casting us out and away from the ones we've sinned against. We sinned against God, our sin separated us from him, and from our home. You see what's happening here? You are dying because this is not your home. You were not made for this. It was not made for you. It is not suitable to support the way God created you. All of us, every human being who has ever lived has felt this loss. That's why we keep writing all these songs about it. And so, other than sing about it, right? In in our pain, what do we tend to do? We have this ache. And so the first thing what we do is, well, we try to clean up the house that we find ourselves in a little bit to make it seem, well, maybe not all that bad or normal. It's like what my kids do with their dorm rooms. This is, in a sense, this is why, and it's a little bit of a strange tradition, this is why we have open casket funerals where we make sure we do all that we can to preserve the body and slather the deceased all up with makeup. As gruesome as it sounds, it's true. We sew their eyes and mouths shut, and as we walk by, we repeat the most oft-repeated line next to the open casket, 
Oh, doesn't he look good? Oh, you know, she looks fantastic, almost like she's asleep. It's like we're trying to convince ourselves, right, that, that this isn't that bad. See, the second thing we do, the second thing we do is we try to, to numb the pain a bit by doing our best to make this world our home. What do we do? We, we buy bigger houses or nicer cars. We, we go after prestigious titles. We, we, we go on fancy vacations. Heck, there's a whole book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And the whole book is written about this pursuit. The author, Israel's King Solomon, known to be one of the richest and wisest men who have, have ever lived. He writes, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who will follow them. He actually precludes his arguments with this thought, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Or, Maybe you've tried to do this. I, I do all the time. We try to do what the author Thomas Wolfe famously declared. You can't go home again. Have you tried that? I do it all the time. I can tell you it doesn't work. Joan and I were just on vacation last week. We went to the same beach we've been going to for our whole lives. I mean, not just the same beach. It's like the same spot. It is in some ways like home, but it's not. You know why? Because when I'm there, I, I, I turn around and I, I look back on the condo balcony. And you know what I remember? I remember sitting there with my father every night before going out to dinner for like a decade, telling stories and laughing until we cried, except that my dad is, well, he's too old now. Arthritis has taken over his body. He's, he's not there anymore. I'm dealing with the truth that he's probably never going to be there again. And, you know, I look into the kitchen where as a kid, my mom used to pack the beach bag up with snacks. I mean, she used to be in that kitchen until my parents got divorced and, and, and my dad took the Ocean City trip as his. I'm down on the beach, right? And I look to my left, and as I do, I can kind of see in my mind's eye Courtney running around with her mouth full of sand and her diaper full of seawater. But this week, Courtney had to leave early to go home with her husband. I, I look down at the shoreline, and I, I can see all of my kids sitting in, in this sand boat. I would build them every year, except now they're all gone, and I'm too old to build the boat. See, I, I, I want to go home, but it, it, it's not there anymore either. And ultimately, when none of these things work, what we tend to do, what we tend to do is, is mask the pain. We, we drink a little too much. We try to find some pleasure in the arms of another. We self-medicate with drugs or food or, or retail therapy. Anything to mask this, this longing. See, this is the despondent place where so many of us get to. But I want you to know the same scripture that describes the ache describes another way, another choice. C.S. Lewis addressed it in a letter he wrote to Sheldon Von Aachen, who had been expressing some of these same laments about the vanity of this life. 
In, in Van Auken's book, A Severe Mercy, he pens that, quote, in his second letter to me at Oxford, Lewis asked how it was that I, as a product of a material, uni a material universe, was not at home there. Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? And then if we complain of time and take such joy in the seemingly timeless moment, what does that suggest? It suggests that we have not always been or will not always be purely temporal creatures. It suggests that we were created for eternity. Not only are we harried by time, we seem unable, despite a thousand generations, even to get used to it. Do you feel that? We're always amazed by it, how fast it goes, how slow it goes, how much of it's gone. Where, we're always saying, has the time gone? We aren't adapted to it. We're not at home in it. If that is so, Lewis wrote, it may appear as a proof or at least a powerful suggestion that eternity exists and it's our home. You see, he's actually saying here what he famously wrote in, in his great treatise, Mere Christianity, where he said that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A, a duckling wants to swim, well, there's something like water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. He concluded, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that this universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing, a real home. See, we have a home. We, we all know it. We, we can feel it. Our ache serves nothing more than to prove that it exists. But how do we find it? Where is it? And how do we get there? This is the whole of the biblical narrative. Sin and separation, alienation and isolation. Think it through with me, right? Some of you that know, know Israel's story, God no longer... Uh, no sooner raises Moses up to bring his people out of the promised land to give them a home of their own, a promised land. And what do they do? Well, in the desert they rebel and, and they sin and they want to go back to Egypt. And the punishment for that generation, 40 years of wandering, homelessness and alienation. And so then God starts again with the next generation and he allows them into this promised land and he blesses Israel so that they become a kingdom of priests and their role, their job was to bless all of the nations of the earth. But what does Israel do? They become proud and, and they begin to bless themselves while oppressing others. Their punishment? God permits the Babylonian Empire to conquer them and what do they do? They lead them in exile away from their home. It's always the same story. It's funny, this concept of, of sin and alienation, it's so rooted in the scriptures, it's so rooted in the history of the people of Israel, they actually held an annual ritual every year. God commanded it to remind them of this story. It was during the celebration of Yom Kippur, the, the priest would place his hands on what was known as the scapegoat and he would ceremonially place the sins of all of the people of Israel on the goat. 
And then once the ceremony had taken place, what did God command the priest to do with the scapegoat? Quote, he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of somebody appointed for that task. The goat will carry on itself all of their sins to a remote place. And the man shall release it in the wilderness where he would die. You see, sin and separation, sin and separation, sin and separation. It was during one of these periods, their captivity in Babylon, where God, through various prophets, he would speak of a day, though, of a great, brilliant coming promise, a a hope for both Israel and the whole world, a day to come, a, a day of, well, of homecoming. Through Jeremiah, he, he promised that, quote, See, I will bring them from the land of the north, and I'll gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. How about this? Through Ezekiel, God promised, On the day I cleanse you from all of your sins, I will resettle your towns, and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. And they will say, quote, This land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruin, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. God makes this promise of this future Garden of Eden to come, a, a, a future city a city of God for all who would believe, a home. It was the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews which picked up this language and who tasted our longing. And he wrote this. After speaking of the selfless and courageous works of the heroes of the faith who had come before, people like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, here's what he writes. He says, all of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for God has prepared a city for them. You know what the first thing you have to do is, if you really want to find home? It's actually kind of simple. You just have to admit that you're not there yet, that you are literally a foreigner and a stranger on earth. You have to admit this isn't home, but it's not just admitting it. It's the sense of beginning to live like it's not. I heard it said this week that this term foreigners and strangers, it carries the connotation of being a resident alien. Alien in recognizing that this is not your home. You recognize you weren't made for this place and this place wasn't made for you. Maybe you felt this way. It's Its visions and values, its lifestyles and longings are not yours. Oftentimes, you're going to feel like a foreigner. And the Scriptures say that's good. You should admit it. In fact, stop trying to fit in. Stop trying to be like the locals. You know the old saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? The writer says, no, don't do that. Don't adopt the cultures of this world. 
right? But, and here's the but, you are a resident alien, meaning that you are an alien that is rooted here, residing here. This is the place where you're going to be living. And so, because you are a resident here, you have a responsibility here to care for it and its inhabitants and their well-being. You've heard it preached, be in the world but not of the world. The scriptures seem to indicate something a little bit more. The scriptures seem to say, be in the world and be just like your father who so loved the world. And so if you want to make your way home, the first thing you have to do is you have to admit that you are an alien in the world. This is not your home. Stop trying so hard to fit in. Don't adopt all of its cultures and values. All of those things, they're just trying to soothe the pain of our alienation anyway. Yet, yet, you don't hate this world. You love, you, you love, like your father, the world. You reside here for a reason. Now, the writer goes on in chapter 13. He picks up the same language of cities, but this time he relates it to what happened to both the scapegoat and the sacrificial goats in the history of Israel. He writes, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy places of sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him. Go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Guys, once we acknowledge, once we understand, once we give up on trying to make this world our home, what do we do? Well, because we don't have an enduring city, but we're looking for a city to come, we go to Jesus. The Jesus who is slain on a cross outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem to make you and I holy through his blood. Think this through. Jesus is the scapegoat, our scapegoat, who had our sin placed on him. The sin of the whole world. Jesus who is set out of the city of Jerusalem so that you and I might be brought into the city of God. Jesus who left his home to bring you home. Jesus who said foxes have dens and birds have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He became homeless so that you might have a house. Jesus who only a couple of hours before being taken outside of the city gate to be crucified and to pay the price for the sin which separated you and I from God. He gathered with the disciples. Do you remember what he told them? He said, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there, that I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you? Guys, you know, even the best fathers and the warmest homes, they are just a faint echo of what God has in store for you. Jesus has paid the mortgage on your future home. You owe nothing. He paid it all. But until you realize your problem, you will chase all kinds of other things. Jesus is saying, I will take your place as the exile in order to make you a citizen, in order that you might have a home. This writer to, to the Hebrews, he, he says, we need to go to Jesus outside the gate, bearing the disgrace he bore. Look, if you think following Jesus is countercultural now, you should have been in the audience of this letter. 
These were first century Jews suffer under ter- suffering under terrible hardships for their faith. And the writer is encouraging them, well, he's encouraging them on in their walk as he's encouraging us on. Look, you are, as a follower of Christ, never going to fit in perfectly. Well, I want to say here, but the truth is anywhere. You are a resident alien. Some of your beliefs and practices, the way you live, the way you love, the way you give and share and forgive, they're going to set you at odds with the culture. This is not just our culture. It is any culture. People are going to think that you are strange. But that's okay. As Jesus, like Jesus, with him as our model, we too bear that burden the cost, the shame of not always fitting in or being cool or hip, and and we go to him anyway. How? Through Jesus, therefore, the writer said, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. You know how you do this? You openly, publicly praise, thank, and glorify God, not caring what people think of you. So how do we find our home? How do we get home? Well, number one, you have to realize you're not home yet. Stop faking it. This is not your home. We have to live like resident aliens. You know what we have to do? We have to do what Paul said. We, he said, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. That's number one. Number two, whatever cost of shame it might bring us, we go with Jesus as our guide and our model. We go to him publicly. We bear the shame as he bore our shame. We repent and ask and find in him the forgiveness for the sin that separates us. And the truth is, in him we find our home. And then lastly, there's this. The writer concludes with it. He says, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For such sacrifices, with such sacrifices, God is pleased. We are not to be aliens that sit around disparaging the culture around us, protesting about things that we don't find to our liking, casting others out and away from ourselves. We are resident aliens. For now, this is where God has us. We plant ourselves here. We do good here. We share with others here. We love our neighbors in every form and fashion possible, expecting that they won't love us back even if they think we're crazy. And you know why? Because this is how Jesus loved you. You know, if we were to get this right, think it through with me, right? Do you know where the closest thing to home you'll find on this earth is? It's this church. Literally right here, this community. It would be each of us. That's what church should feel like. When you come in here on Sunday morning, you should come in and just feel like, geez, I'm finally home. I've sent four kids off to college now, and and I've always loved the first time they come back every semester because when they walk in the door, you can literally see a change in them. It's almost like watching a giant weight get lifted off their shoulders every time they immediately just kind of fall on the couch and, and relax, and, and it's like they start to be themselves. I, I've asked them about it over the years because it's kind of fun to watch, and, and they've all said the same thing, that it's hard to put into words exactly what it feels like for the first time when you've ever been away from home to be home. And, and, and I guess the best, you know, in, in trying to talk to them, they've always kind of said 
similar things. They said it's kind of like out there, I, I always have to be on. I'm either in class or I'm in my, in my dorm room with my roommate. I can never just exhale and, and know that I can relax because I'm wanted and loved here. I don't have to perform. Uh, nobody's watching me. I'm not being judged. You see, guys, that's what home feels like. That's what this place should feel like. Can I encourage you, please make sure you are part of making it feel that way for everybody that comes here. And can I encourage you, please make sure you don't contribute to making it feel any other way. You know, your friends and mine, they may not know, they may not feel like they're looking for Jesus. Maybe this morning you're sitting around watching the podcast and you stumbled upon it or, you know, your wife made you get up and watch it with her. You might not feel like you're looking for him either, but here's the truth. Here's what you and I and all of us know. Everybody is looking for a home. The psalmist discovered, Lord, through all the generations, you've been our home. See, if we get it right, if, if we would finally give up on trying to be at home in this world and admit we're resident aliens, if we would stop trying to make this place our home, if we would confess to Jesus and seek his forgiveness in his life, then we will not forget, if we would not forget to, to do good and share with others, then perhaps it might be said of this place what was said of the early Christian church. It was discovered in a very early manuscript written about 100 years after the resurrection of Jesus to a man named Diognetus about the early church. Somebody wrote to, to this Diognetus about what was happening with this early band of believers. Now imagine if the 92,962 people who lived within one town of our church who do not have the home they're longing for, imagine if they heard this about us, about this church. Quote, the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs for which they observe. For they inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. And following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. Their residence there. They dwell in their own countries, now listen to this, but simply as sojourners, as, as citizens they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry and beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They, they are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They're poor, yet they make many rich. They're in lack of all things, and yet they abound in all. They're dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, 
and yet are justified. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good and yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners. They're persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Here's what he wrote. He said, to sum it all up in one word, what the soul is in the body, that are Christians in the world. Friends, the place you long to be is not West Virginia, and country roads will not get you there. God is your home, and Jesus Christ is exactly what he said he is. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the way home, even more. He is our home. Turns out all these years, all these songs, we've just been singing about him.